Today, we're talking to keynote speaker and international best-selling author, Jim Harris, about the nature of disruptive technology in 2023. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. Jim, it's good to see you, man. Hello, good to see you. So you started as a journalist working back when journalists used to get like paid. <laughs> you could be a job yeah. and it wasn't just a super hard thing to do. And then when did you transition from just being a journalist to, to having this personal brand? How did that develop? Well, a couple things happened. So first off, I wrote this book and it was a national bestseller. And then the moment it came out, well, even before it came out, people began calling me saying, hey, we want you to come speak at our conference and tell us what the best companies have in common on strategy or employee engagement. So I went on to the speaking circuit. This is more than 30 years ago. And then uh, I ended up uh, connecting with uh, Stephen Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Powerful, powerful book. And I represented uh, Stephen for six years teaching The Seven Habits. Then I brought out my second book, which was called The Learning Paradox. And when I published the first book, after it came out in 1990, IBM laid off 200,000 people worldwide, half its workforce. So I began to say, if not even the best companies can provide job security for people, what does create job security? And I came up with an answer, which was uh, learning changing and accepting uncertainty. And what we tend to fear most as adults is learning, changing, and uncertainty. And so I called that book The Learning Paradox. You can just see it right here with a baby on the cover because our our very job security is based on the things that many people fear the most. And then I've written a number of other books, but Blindsided came out, which looks at disruptive innovation. And, um, so, for instance, uh, right now, Tesla is worth more than 17 traditional car companies combined. Uh, that's head spinning. Or Uber is worth more than every taxi cab company in North America added together. And so while the taxi industry owns billions of dollars of assets in the form of cars and limousines, Uber doesn't own a single vehicle. And to me, that shows a widely distributed app is a huge multiplier on valuation. It also shows me the collapse of traditional business models where, you know, you measured, you look at uh, the asset base. Well, the assets aren't physical cars anymore. The assets are innovation and technology with a multiplier effect of having a widely distributed app. So the rules of the game are totally different. And there is so much disruption that is happening in every single industry uh, conceivable. So I got into this whole field of writing, thinking, speaking, consulting on disruption. And then because of that, um, I've been going to CES and Comdex before it for the last 30 years because technology is a huge enabler of this disruption. It disrupts business models. So I've been going to CES, uh, you know, in Vegas, every single, it's an annual pilgrimage. I also go to uh, Davos for WEF 
and I go to MWC in Barcelona, which is the preeminent uh, mobile conference. So everything I do focuses on disruption. Now, I want to I give one example here, just right up front on, on the show, how it's not all about tech. So we need to deconstruct jobs. So the pandemic has thrown a monkey wrench into so many industries, so many business models. It has accelerated digital transformation by a decade. Uh, so I argue, for instance, in, in um, e-commerce, we saw 10 years of growth in e-commerce, online shopping, in the first 90 days of the pandemic. That blows me away. So these trends were here pre-pandemic, but they got turbocharged by COVID. So coming back to deconstructing jobs, you know, healthcare workers have been burned out and some have long COVID and, you know, they had to work double, triple shifts and there's a shortage of nurses and doctors. And ah. so one medical group, Providence Health, couldn't get enough nurses. So they went and they looked at what is the actual work that these nurses do? And 30 to 40% of their job is keying into keyboards or charting or sticking thermometers in, in patients' mouths. We won't talk about where they <laughs> otherwise stick thermometers, Joel. We'll leave that to the listeners. <laughs> but you don't need a professional nurse who's had years of school or a doctor to chart or to keyboard or to stick thermometers in people. So they, they deconstructed the jobs. They reassigned the 30 to 40% that the, a nurse didn't have to do to another person who doesn't have to be as highly uh, trained or as qualified. And their, surprise, surprise, their nursing shortage went away. So it's not just about the technology. We have to think about how technology enables new relationships, new business models, and we have to deconstruct the way our organizations work, the way jobs work, and reconstruct them given the new reality. So I know your listeners are CTOs, uh, which is all about the technology, but we need the human aspect as well. And that's the difficult part. That's where the rubber hits the road. So another great example for me is pre-pandemic, the average American worker spent five work weeks a year in traffic jams or on crowded transit getting to or from work. Where is the joy of that? Like if you're in a Lamborghini, you might think this is joyous, but if you're going one mile an hour in a traffic jam, it's either my knee or the clutch that's getting burned out in the Lambo, right? So there's no joy in commuting, no joy. And we found that the pandemic accelerated, you know, it blew up this model that we have to be physically in work to be productive. So how are organizations reconstituting themselves with hybrid work and work from home? And uh, how do we be productive? How do we achieve increased productivity? I have, uh, as a client, one insurance company. And I know this is, Joel, the longest answer in the world. To <laughs> <laughs> If it's good, if it wasn't, I'd stop you. <laughs> Is it the gecko? Can you say? You probably can't say. Uh, but so this one insurance company, 
And the sales rep, they believed in the magical properties of ink. You see, ink is magical. It's got like Harry Potter properties. You know, only ink can bind a new insurance policy. So like this, the, the poor sales reps for this organization had to drive two and a half hours west of my city to go meet a prospect for 45 minutes, hopefully sign a deal, and then three hours, three and a half hours back in rush hour traffic, a whole day to meet one client. And then the pandemic hit and nobody could meet anybody. And so 30 years of legal and compliance saying only ink can bind a policy had to evaporate overnight and they moved to DocuSign. Now, was it really a legal and regulatory problem or was it a mindset problem or was it legal and regulatory, you know, exerting political power in their organization? Was it really a requirement to have ink? No. And so the pandemic forced these culture changes, these people and process changes. But that sales rep can now make eight pitches a day, not one pitch a day. So his sales have actually increased. So there are huge benefits when we're forced against our will to cross the chasm and get to the other side and find out how technology can profoundly benefit lines of business and our companies and increase sales and increase customer satisfaction, increase employee engagement, increase employee satisfaction. So I believe we have to, yes, I am a total tech fan, but we have to look at how do we get involved in digital transformation from a people perspective? How do we bring the whole organization along? How do you do it? I know yeah. you <laughs> How do you do it? Yeah, that, that's that. That's you can okay, have that's your, water, your question. You got to yeah. answer that one. <laughs> I'll share a quick story with you. So I'm fully on board with this this idea of you know the the insurance company and the ink and going digital because when i was starting this company i did it as a hobby for 2 years and then uh, i raised started to get some traction raised some money and when i was going around it was the first time i'd ever raised money by myself and i remember the group i closed the deal with i had i was up in front of them talking and you know they were probably average age 55 right and uh, they were asking me a bunch of questions and then they, they said, Hey, we noticed, you know, in your PL that you, you don't have any travel expenses. Like, how do you, how do you go get these deals and tell me about that? And I said, Oh, Zoom. And they looked at me like, Well, what do you mean? And I said, Well, I, I meet with people on Zoom. They're like, Well, so you meet people at a conference and then you do a Zoom call? I was like, No, I was like, I just meet people on Zoom. Like, I meet them on Zoom. We do business on Zoom and then they send us money. And <laughs> and they were looking at they me like I was like, <laughs> that's exactly how easy it is, right? No, but wow. we would do meetings. I send emails. I say, hey, you have this problem. We can talk about it. We get on a call, you know, because we have an audience, right? You're familiar with this model. We've got an audience, a bunch of tech listeners. People want to get in front of the tech listeners, so we just say, hey, we have this audience. Do you have anything worthy of like news or something we can, you know, work on together as a story? And then sometimes they say yes, and then they. You know, sponsor the show, and that's that's how it goes, right? That's how we generate most of our money, and so it was just an amazing um, moment. And I don't want to rag on them too hard, so Josh can decide if this makes into the episode because I love them. And they're, like, <laughs> they're the best firm ever. Shout out to Florida Funders, they're the largest VC in Florida. But I remember that same time standing up in front of them, pitching them, 
they had asked me if I if I had been doing any radio advertising, and I said, "Well, what do you mean?" I was like, "Pandora or Spotify?" They're like, "No, like radio in the car." I said, "Oh, those still exist?" Because in my <laughs> world, I have not been on cable or used any like I've been using Pandora and Netflix for media consumption for over ten years. So this idea that I would use my car system for anything other than pairing to it and playing exactly what I want to hear through Pandora is foreign concept to me. I figured, because I saw iHeartRadio release apps and I saw everyone start to do this other stuff, I figured that the radio stuff had just maybe gone away or stopped, but it didn't. There's still radio stations and they'll play ads a bunch and music and people still listen to it. Sadly, my wife's one of those people. I'm sorry, Jim. <laughs> I'm so- She likes the radio. <laughs> Well, this this really reminds me, uh, who is closest to the future? The 65-year-old CEO who has his assistant print out all his emails for him to read, or the 18-year-old who's on Tinder? You know, who does all the strategic planning? Who is most disenfranchised from strategic planning? Is it any wonder we only get incremental change? So I don't want to be ageist. I don't want to suggest just because you have gray hair or no hair, you can't change the world. Um, when he was CEO of General Electric, Jack Welsh knew nothing about the Internet. So he had the humility. Stephen Covey used to say the first virtue of leadership is humility. He had the humility to get some 20-somethings who came in every week and mentored him on the internet. It's called reverse mentoring. So the question to all the CTOs listening today or C-suite or CXOs would be, do you have a reverse mentor? Do you have some Gen Z who comes in every week and teaches you about what the cool new things are that they're using and how they're using them? Now, you can't just confuse a technology with deep business wisdom. Like, I remember when the internet, uh, you know, launched into our consciousness with the web in 1993, that one of the coolest applications was a fish cam. So this was a camera pointed at a goldfish bowl, and you could watch the goldfish swim around. Like, the techies thought, this is the best thing ever. Like, okay, like, love it, love it, great. But what's the business use case? How do you actually do this in a way that's going to generate a business model? Well, I don't care. It's just cool. So you, we can't leave everything to the techies. We need a tech-forward vision married to business wisdom. So it's like Jack Welsh and the 20-somethings mentoring him. How do we take that business knowledge and marry it to the technology to create something new that nobody's ever seen before? So it's not an either or, it's an and. So the question for an organization from my perspective is, do you have a shadow board? You know, you have a board of directors or an executive committee, and they make all the CapEx decisions, big decisions. Do you have a shadow board of millennials and Gen Zs, and you run all your major decisions by them, and they say, oh, that's brain dead. I was at a conference once. I talked to a lot of CEOs, and we had so much fun at this conference that they invited me back to speak again the next year. And at the dinner for the sponsors the night before, one CEO, his name's Jeff, 
and he has a company called Altamita. They do helixical pilings for pre-construction. It's like big screws that go into the ground to create stability for a high-rise. Jeff came up and said, look, Jim, I got to tell you what happened in the intervening year. I said, I'm all ears. He said, you told us about assetless expansion like Airbnb and Uber that can grow exponentially, but no CapEx requirements. You told us to create a shadow board of millennials and Gen Zs and run major decisions by them. That's what I did. I wanted to expand, and the way I would have done it is a $15 million custom design build manufacturing facilities. But my shadow board said, that's brain dead. Why don't we just go find, and this, by the way, is pre-pandemic, why don't we just go find a facility that's overbuilt and rented? So he did. He found a brand spanking new facility. The owners had overbuilt by more than 100% to allow for future expansion. They had no plans to use it for the next three to five years. He got to rent it literally pennies to the dollar of what his approach would have been. So then the pandemic hit. And let's look at the implications of this pivot in, in mindset. So one, he totally de-risked expansion. He didn't have a $15 million capex. Time-wise, the cycle time of getting up and running was cut by 90% because the new facility was built. He just had to put the equipment into it. He was cash flow positive from day one and profitable from day one. And then the pandemic hit and he wasn't left servicing $15 million a debt. And so what I said is, Jeff, what you're really saying is coming to this conference last year, hearing me speak, changing your mindset was worth $15 million to you. And he goes, yeah, Jim, I guess you could say that. And I said, you're paying for my dinner tonight, man. <laughs> I'd ask for a check. <laughs> yeah, I got I to gotta change my business model to take a take of this, right? Some small percentage. But really... You know, we can't just pay lip service to mindset. We have to have systemic systems and structures in our organizations to promote ways of seeing things differently. And the shadow board of Gen Zs and millennials is an example of a systemic approach, like Jack Welsh having this 20-something mentor him, reverse mentor him every week, is a systemic approach. So how are you staying fresh? And what triggered this, Joel, was, you know, the VCs having no idea that you could have a, a business model without ever meeting. Like, think about all the cost that is stripped out of the old model that you don't have to fly places and meet people and stay in, you know, hotels and eat, you know, meals. Like, you can have an amazing business and tuck your kids in at night. Wow. And that's going to make the world better because you're more present as a as a father and or a mother. And yeah, I, I, I'm curious. Systemic approaches. The shadow board's a great example. I see that as more of a learning and changing connection to the learning paradox that you have. What about accepting uncertainty? Has anyone had a successful systemic approach to that? Oh, that's a good one. Well, I'm going to get a little bit philosophical uh, okay. here for a second. There's an ancient Chinese religion called Taoism. It's spelt with a T. It uh, doesn't sound like it, it, what it, how it's spelt. But 3,000 years, I can only understand things in terms of analogy or stories. So 
here's how I understand Taoism. 3,000 years ago, in rural China, there was a small village. And in this village was a farmer who owned his own horse. So he was the wealthiest person in the village. He used it for transportation and plowing his fields. And one day his horse ran away. And all the villagers said to him, what terrible luck. All your wealth has just left you. And he said, maybe. And two days later, his horse came back, bringing with it two wild horses. And they said, what incredible luck. All your wealth has returned. In fact, you're three times as wealthy as you were. You know, you're now the richest person, not just in the village, but the district. And he said, maybe. And that day, his only son was out riding one of the wild horses, trying to tame it. It bucked him off and he broke his leg. And 3,000 years ago, a broken femur was life-threatening. And they said, what terrible luck, your only son with a broken leg. And the farmer said, maybe. And the next day, the emperor's men came through the village, conscripting every young man to fight in a war, taking every young man to their certain death, except for the farmer's son. And the villagers said, what incredible luck. And he said, maybe. And really, this is what life is like. Sometimes the most wonderful situations are not that great in hindsight, and sometimes the most difficult situations are really the seedbed upon which glorious things are built. But I really don't know what it is. We unfortunately live life going forward, but we only understand it in hindsight. So the question for me is, how do I live with joy, calm, and serenity of the farmer, regardless of what's happening in the external world? You know, I really, how do I have that? And many people, for instance, what comes to mind right now is with ChatGPT being the fastest growing app in the history of the world, you know, going from zero to a million users in five days, and now two months, a hundred million users, people are fearful. Some people are fearful about AI. AI is going to take my jobs, my job, you know. Well, if you're doing something that is dull, dirty, or dangerous, it's a good thing that AI takes your job because, you know, if you're just keying in data, re-keying in data, that is the most boring job in the world. AI can do that. You can do something more interesting. Do you know that up to 80% of phone calls into an IT support center are people just resetting their password? How <laughs> exciting is that to be on the other end of the phone? In fact, could an AI do that just as well? Maybe even better with, you know, seven-factor authentication, your voice print, your the phone number you're calling in on, you know, uh, the, the retina scan of your eyes if you're on Zoom together, you know, seven-factor authentication, it's more secure, and boom, all the people now can do half-hour calls, not five-minute calls that are brain-dead and more exciting things. So we often think in polar opposites, black or white. It's not going to be AI or people. It's going to be companies that use AI with people are going to outperform companies that don't use any AI and just have people. So it's not going to take our jobs. It's going to change our jobs. We're going to have to upskill. We're going to get more exciting work. So I don't see these polar opposites. But people often think, you know, it's either good or bad. And in the story of the Taoist farmer, I live life going forward, but I only understand it in hindsight. So, in fact, the, the, the farmer's son breaking his leg was the 
most fantastic piece of luck he could have ever had because he didn't face certain death in a war. You know, so how do I look at change and remain joyous as I go forward? How do, as opposed to generating a fear response? So how do we help organizations transition? And this is where we get back to that people part that we were talking about before. I think I've gone down a little bit of a rabbit hole here, Joel. Yeah. Help me. Bring I've me got back. A bunch of, yeah, I've got a bunch of stuff for you. I was, everything you say sounds good, so I'm just taking notes for a while. <laughs> uh, the farmer story. I have found that to be more often the rule than the exception, at least in my life. You know, the worst thing that most people would say ever happened to me, which is when I got hit by a car when I was about 11, 12, and I was in a wheelchair for two years, that that most people would look at my life and say that's the worst thing. For me, I think it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. It taught me humility, you know, having people have to take care of me physically. It allowed me to be inside at the computer more where I picked up a lot of my skills that ultimately led me down the career path I chose. And you know, I, I didn't realize this until about a year and a half ago when my uh, sister-in-law said, "Hey, my my sons, they're, they're they're wild boys, like to play in the street, and they're not watching for cars correctly. Can you go tell them your story about how awful it was with you getting hit by a car and how it like messed up your life and all of that?" I said, "Vicky, I can't. I go. This is the best thing that ever happened to me. So I I get it. I'm curious. What? When, okay. Go ahead. Can I jump in on yeah. one thing? So I want to share." my experience of of having a medical problem. So I get a, a symptom, something's wrong, and I, I have to call my doctor, and um, it takes me four weeks to get in to see her, typically. And if I have something else that's come up that day, like a client wants me to be in Las Vegas for a, a keynote, uh, I have to cancel and get another appointment eight weeks away from when my symptoms first appeared. It's just, and then on the actual appointed day, it takes me a half day. I have to drive to her place, find a parking spot, and then I go sit in her waiting room with people who are coughing, sneezing, and scratching. And really, Joel, it's the scratching people that bother me the most. <laughs> and I have to wait for an hour with them until I get to see her for my seven and a half minutes. And then she sends me off next door to the lab where I sit with a whole new group of people who are coughing and sneezing and scratching. She's in a medical building where they draw some blood. And then I go down to the pharmacy and I wait with a whole new group to get some prescription. And then I get home. And it's taken me an entire half day. Like it is insane and parking costs. But during the pandemic, it forced people to begin using telehealth, e-medicine. And in China, 50% of all medical visits during the pandemic were virtual by smartphone. And in the U.S., it's now a billion visits a year, according to McKinsey. So the pandemic forced us to change for the better. Because I, during the pandemic, I had some symptoms and I got an appointment that day, same day, for 15 minutes with a real doctor using video conferencing. Now it was a proprietary system because there's all of security and blah, 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 whatever. But I got to talk to him and he uh, assigned a set of tests which were sent to me 
I physically printed out a requisition slip and I took it to a lab that's just a block away from my home, had the blood pulled. Two and a half days later, it's there online, the results. I get a new consultation with the doctor again and boom, he prescribes something for me. And we've taken an eight week cycle time and jammed it down to two and a half days. And I walk to a pharmacy that's one and a half blocks away from me. From a patient perspective, this is amazing. This is incredible. Like who wants to suffer symptoms for eight weeks, not knowing what that, whether it's serious or this is just something that'll go away with some antibiotics or whatever. So there's a huge enhancement in going digital, but the medical system resisted this pre-pandemic. We, in fact, don't practice evidence-based medicine. We practice reimbursement-based medicine <laughs> because the system didn't reimburse the doctor for a virtual consultation. So surprise, surprise, they didn't do them. But when the pandemic hit, the system had to change. And this is back to the bit. It's not about the technology. It's about the system. You know, Edwards Deming said 94% of problems in organizations are bad or misaligned systems and structures. We have to systemically change our organizations. So if the doctor's not compensated for doing a virtual consult, don't be surprised they don't ever do them. So how do we align incentives with patient outcomes or patient experience? We'd call it user experience or UX or CX so that we get the best outcomes. So nobody thinks about my time. What's the opportunity cost of me taking a half day off to do something that would only take 15 minutes online? And now if I have something really serious, maybe I want to see a doctor or, you know, certain things, you, you know, you want the doctor to, you know, feel my arm or something, whatever, or take an x-ray. But for a lot of things, we can do it this way. So how do we enhance our system, shorten wait times, eliminate backlogs using technology? Absolutely. Yeah. I've, this is close to me because I have two physicians in my immediate family. And so when they're not available, we'll use something like Teladoc, you know, to get on there. But it, it's amazing to me how when that did happen, you start to realize that 80%, I'm just making that up, but 80% of the visits seem to be visits where that could be done online, right? And you're exactly right. They'll send you off to the lab, you know, lab core or something down the street, and you'll run the labs and, and then they'll do their prescription. It's, it's a pretty straightforward process. So I, I think most of them are still doing it. I know some of them uh, have actually stepped back from from doing the uh, virtual consultations, I got a letter from from one of the uh, doctors that uh, I had in Florida, and he said that you know we're the something expired, some law expired, and, and he can't do the uh, visits for whatever the specific type of thing or whatnot. But or because I was in another state and it didn't overflow to the other states, because I think for a while doctors could practice in any state in the pandemic under some emergency orders, and now they can't. So. Overall, net positive and the changes, but I, I want to change the topic because I'm curious to share a brief story about me uh, in Chat GPT. 
and how I was scared and then how I stopped being scared because you spent your entire career in disruption and technology and uncertainty. And then I'm hoping you could give me some perspective to, to how I how I went about it. Is that okay? Sure. Love okay. to hear it. Uh, so my background is you know software engineering, and so I wasn't a stranger to language models, and I've seen that hanging around for a while. When I saw ChatGPT, at first I dismissed it, and then one night I was on YouTube and I saw somebody doing a tutorial of how they're doing this project with ChatGPT, going to help them writing some code, and I saw them interacting with it in a quick like two minute video, and I said, "Get out of here! That can't be what it actually <laughs> is," you know. And and so I I started digging a little bit deeper and I said, whoa, this is unbelievable. And I signed up for the trial or the free thing. And then I started talking to the chat GPT and I said, this is, I, I got like legitimately scared. But I've, you know, humans, when I get scared, I usually have a process of, okay, how do I reason about this? How do I understand it? And then leverage it to move forward because I'm not the type to, you know, stick my head in the ground. And it usually happens for me pretty quickly, but this time it took like a week and the way I came back from it is the I tried to extract some principles to not be so scared. Because I saw the deep fakes, I saw the ability to replicate voice perfectly through text, and I was trying to think of what could put me out of business, right? And it seems like all the technology, or at least the beginnings of all of it, are there. So I said, to not freak out, how am I going to deal with this? Well, I need some core principles, maybe some first principles type deal where I can reason about it that way. And so I said... The first thing I know is early on in my career, I started, I was building software that made teams more efficient. Maybe you could have a team of 20 people, and then after you use the software, you'd only need a team of two people. Well, I went in physically to their offices to help them with this, and I saw that the people that stayed were ultimately the people that were curious. They were the curious people, right? And so I said, okay, whenever I see this big disruption, a lot of people complain about it. A lot of people ignore it, and then a small subset of people get curious about it, play with it, learn it, and then they end up being the ones that are there when every when the dust is settled. So I said, as long as I have that principle of I keep playing with it, I keep trying, and it's had a direct impact in my business. So we only have about twenty people. Uh, we do a little under two million dollars a year in revenue, and uh, we manage you know, my show and fifteen other shows. And so we do a lot of show prep, like how you did with Josh and all of that. And we started using ChatGPT for that. So I would feed it your bio, I'd feed it things I'm interested in asking you, and I'd have it spit out questions. And I'd say, you know, make those questions more genuine or make them more interesting or center them around this. And it was phenomenal. It was insane. So, so good. And I said, (laughs) wow, we've got to implement this. So it actually, within one week of me trying, Playing, I said, you know what I'm going to do before I go approach the production team, my head of production, and say, hey, there's this thing we got to try. I said, I'm going to use it on three or four of my shows, and I'm not going to tell anyone that I'm doing it. So I, you know, put time in my calendar, and I did my own prep, and I used it on three or four of my shows, and it was phenomenal. So then we rolled it out, and as of today, all the producers across all of our shows are now using it to help, and it's a direct so cost cool. savings. Yeah, so cool. So. I don't know if you've ever uh, come across Elsbeth Kubler-Ross's work called On Death and Dying. So if if you're diagnosed with a cancer or, God forbid, or your spouse's, you'll go through these five emotional stages. The first is denial, then anger, then uh, depression, then bargaining, and finally acceptance. And I I love to use this as an example. So when Napster came out, recording industry association executives from the big labels said, 
and tell me what stage you think they're at. Napster's not going to affect our business model at all. Where are they? Denial. Absolutely. Yeah. These kids are pirates. <laughs> That's angry. Like, like, I don't know about you, Joel, but when I was a kid, we called it making tapes. Like you would sit at the end of the year on December 31st on the year in review of music for a radio station, because we talked about radio, and you'd have a cassette in the player with record, play, and pause, and you'd hear the song. We were human Shazams back then, mm -hmm. and you'd take, oh, I like this one. So you'd take the the uh, pause off, and you'd record the song. And we called it making tapes. Kids have always engaged in this behavior because they have a lot of time, and they have no money. So this was just the modern version of making tapes. But... Then we got to, uh, oh my God, the industry is collapsing. And you could see the tanking of the the sales, right? And like, honestly, who are the pirates? You know, I bought the copyright, you know, in 8-track. I bought it on vinyl before that. Then I bought it on cassette. Now I bought it on DVD. And you're calling me the pirate? <laughs> I've had to pay for the same Earth, Wind, and Fire songs four times. And I'm the pirate? Give me a break. So the bargaining stage was them saying, okay, you can download this song, but you can only play it on the device you downloaded it on. That's like saying you can buy a CD, but you can only play it on the car. You can't play it at home or up at the cottage or while you're traveling. You can only listen to it in the car. Like, that's idiotic. But that was the bargaining and finally acceptance. So my question around disruption is, why was it Apple that reinvented the business model and took a huge swath of value out of the industry, the industry was incapable of reinventing itself. So they gave the industry to Apple, which makes, literally, this is a Dr. Evil moment, billions of dollars every year. That works you know, for you. <laughs> if you guys aren't, if you guys are listening, <laughs> go watch the YouTube. <laughs> Billions of dollars to Apple, right? So this is a human response to any profound change. These five stages of death and dying. And so if you feel your business model is threatened, just like if you feel your spouse has been diagnosed with cancer, you go through these stages. And the first four stages paralyze you from constructive response. It's only in the final stage that you can do it. But the recording industry never got to that point before Apple did. They were years in court trying to sue individuals who downloaded uh, MP3s. Like, I I loved Napster. I loved Kazaa. You know, all of them. Man, they Lime were wire. amazing. Yeah. I found new music. Like, Shazam was a religious experience when it came along. These are the kinds of innovations that tech enables that they were unwilling to embrace. But a company like Apple was willing to embrace, which leads to a fascinating insight. Disruption typically comes from outside the industry. The industry incumbents have what you could call paradigm paralysis. This is the way we've always done it. This is the de facto standard of how you run a record business. Well, mm, 
Like, I don't know if you've ever seen, I, I might pronounce her name incorrectly, Kawi, K-A-W-H-I. She's a, she's a uh, one-woman show of music. She, oh, my God. Beautiful work. But she basically can create a song using a looping machine, a keyboard. Oh, yeah. a, 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 she's incredible. Uh, the other one is Mark Robile. I might be pronouncing his name wrong but if you if you go google them the two of them have exquisite music and they're one person shows and they've changed the business model what the they allow fans to subscribe or donate mm -hmm. to them and they travel and they do shows but really uh they can do everything from a living room or there's a great Kawe where she does a cover of michael jack one of michael jackson's songs sitting on her bed with her two dogs, mm -hmm. you know, sitting beside her. She's just incredible. I see Josh coming in. Are you going to yeah. play one of them, Josh? I think he's going to show us that. Yeah, can you guys hear that? Oh, there it is. We see it now. Oh, my goodness, Josh. Thank you. And what is so cool about those two that we just have talked about is you watch them building their song piece by piece. And so... You watch uh, Kawi um, do one loop, and mm -hmm. then, okay, that's locked in. And then she harmonizes with herself and locks that in, and that's the chorus. And then she goes to build some more pieces with the keyboard or the drum machine, locks that in, and then she sings the song. And you just go, oh, my God. She just built a Michael Jackson, The Way You Make Me Feel song, in real time, during the song. And it and didn't go, require a studio that was a million plus dollars with a team of audio engineers with a bunch of, you know, managers and, you know, agents and all of that. Think about, you know, any major band recording, you know, the, the, the visual we see in movies and stuff back in the 60s. It was this huge deal with these monster machines and tapes and tracks. And yeah, now they can just do it right on their phone or their, you know, MIDI keyboard thing. And and she is she is absolutely brilliant, and so is he. So this has changed the economic model, of course, of the recording industry. Because if you are passionate about something, which they both are, you can pursue your dream. And as people learn about you, they will support you because they love your music. Whether that's coming to a physical show, which we couldn't do during the pandemic or just watching online. So these shifted business models were perfectly aligned and set up for the pandemic to hit. Uh, back to our thesis at the top of the hour that the pandemic turbocharged change. We've had 10 years of change in just three years. So how these trends existed pre-pandemic, but and the genie's never going to go back into the no. bottle. Well, let's talk about that because I, I want your opinion on this. The genie going back into the bottle. UK just read a, an article last night. UK is trying to ban generative AI models like ChatGPT. Now, I think they're in stage two, which is aggression <laughs> or anger. Because at first, maybe denial, then they introduce this legislation. I don't know what's going to happen. I just read the headline and maybe the subparagraph that they're introducing legislation to ban AI generative models like ChatGPT. Have you hit seen that yet? Because I think it just came out yesterday. 
So uh, I haven't seen that yet, but one of the people I follow is Kathy Wood. She's on Wall Street. She's a brilliant Arc, advisor. Arc Investments or something like that. Arc, A-R-K, yeah. and her primary fund is A-R-K-K. And I've, I hold Arc funds and uh, pre, uh, I think 2020, her fund was the best performing fund of any fund. And then in 2022, it was the worst performing fund of any fund because as inflation went up, her everything tech-oriented and disruptive went down. But this year, now with 2023, she's back to 29% return in January. She's she's a big bull on Tesla. I'm a big bull on Tesla. Um, and let me tell you, at, at the start of January, I loaded up on Tesla. But it was at a PE of 30. Oh my God. I, I bought as much Tesla as I could. So, you know, and I've seen it like a hundred percent return in 30 days. So it's not bad for an annualized return, a hundred percent for 30 days. But the point of, of ARC and the point of Kathy is she just released uh, her new study with her brilliant analyst team called Big Ideas, Big Ideas 2023. And in it, she looks at coding and AI. And the bull case that they come up with for coding is a 10x increase in productivity for coding by 2023 using AI. So back to your question, let's assume that the UK bans the use of generative AI for any company in the UK. First off, the problem is companies leave the UK, just like they decided to leave, uh, you know, the EU and they had no idea that Brexit would hammer their economy. So let's say every leading company that is all about tech and innovation leaves the UK because they're banned from using generative AI. First problem for the UK, the flight of your brilliant minds that are all focused on the future. Second problem, imagine every other company in the EU, company, country in the EU, allows for generative AI, and people who are engaged in coding can use AI, and you, every one of those companies experiences a 10x increase in productivity by 2030, because it's people plus AI using, uh, like, most enhanced tools. How are UK companies in general going to do compared to French, German, Italian, you know, Spanish companies that are using AI? So this is like saying back in 1900, nobody can use the telephone. The telephone is going to allow for nefarious things to happen. And the telegraph is just great. So nobody can use the telephone. It's well, the telegraph jobs, Jim. Yeah, the the telegraph jobs. jobs. (laughs) And Joel, you've just hit on something, which is a point that's so important to make. Here in North America, in 1867, 80% of jobs were in agriculture. Today, it's less than 2%. And so there were huge protests about farm automation. You know, if we start using combines instead of, and tractors, instead of horses pulling plows, we're going to lose jobs. Think about all those horse people, horse handlers who are going to lose their jobs on farms. Like, so from 80% to 2%, 
we have survived farm automation. But what is certain is jobs changed, companies had to change, you know, society as a whole had to change. And so really, this is a story not about the technology, in this case, generative AI. It's a story about change. It's a story about innovation. It's about culture. It's about mindset. It's about training. It's about upskilling people. This is where the rubber hits the road. Yeah, and people try to hold on. You remember when all those ships were hanging out in the sea because they couldn't get processed in the ports? Well, after about the third week of me seeing this on the news, I said, let's let's do a special on this. So I started interviewing different technologists that understood all of, all of this world. And here's what I found. The unions in these ports don't allow the technology to, for the port to be automated. The port could be fully automated, like 99% automated with all the cranes doing everything, taking it off the ships. But the unions had prevented, in America, had prevented these technologies from being implemented to keep the union workers' jobs and then that created this massive problem. Meanwhile, you got all these other countries who have just fully automated their ports and they're not having these problems. Exactly. So this is an example where mindset or culture or historical relationships actually hobble uh, an entire nation because then um, it's not just the ports that are a problem. It's all the retailers who are depending on inventory. It's the automakers who now can't assemble do you know that there are tens of thousands of Ford F-150s sitting on a lot because they're missing a one-inch semiconductor? You can't sell your $75,000 truck because you don't have the semiconductor that makes the windshield wipers work, right? So, boom. Now, how, how does rethinking and innovating look and, and what lesson can we learn from this logistic and supply chain nightmare? Well... The average gas car has 2,000 moving parts. The average Tesla has 20. So by being vertically integrated, by making all their own parts, Tesla is not subject to the supply chain risk that traditional auto is. So radically re radical simplification of your manufacturing process, of your supplier logistics supply chain, 99% reduction in moving parts means that they're not susceptible. So in 2022, while every traditional automaker in the U.S. shrunk, their sales were down, Tesla was up. So like this rethinking your business model, not just about the tech, about the business model, has radical implications on risk, on CapEx, on marketing, on sales, and we have to rethink these things because there are all these legacy problems like the unions in ports. And unions themselves are not the problem. It's like I would say management has to engage unions in a way, and you can do this. There are so many examples of it that they're involved in the decision-making, in the evolution, that there are protections in place. Um, so I have case studies from my early books uh, about uh, unions and people who were involved in really profound change initiatives. And when they were involved, they understood the problem, they bought in, they created the solutions, and therefore they didn't go through the fear and denial stages of the five stages of death and dying. And they were onboard supporters of the change. So we need the human aspect to bring people in to change. So 
like those ports could have been dealing with the volume and could have in innovated. Maybe you send little ships out to unload some and bring them into a place that's five miles down the road. You create, you know, mini ports to the either north and south of the ports to unload stuff if there's a backlog. What? How do we deal with this? Well, I'm curious, as we start to wrap up, I, it's probably a philosophical type answer, so I hope you have something for me. But <laughs> I'm 35, just to give you perspective of where I'm at in, in my life. And I've got three kids and a family. And one of the things that I've found to be interesting going through entrepreneurship, businesses, things like that, is in the marketplace, there is this default mindset by 80% of the people that somehow the past, meaning every generation before us, is constantly new things come out, the old jobs go away, but newer jobs come. And this just continues to happen over and over and over. And every time this happens, the people are saying, you know, it's not fair, or you know, we, you can't just expect us to change, or I shouldn't have to learn new things. You can't make the truckers programmers. Like it's just this um, uh, large amount of like angst and difficulty, but it's the same thing happening over and over and over. How come? Like, why is that happening? Why does? Why don't we just say as a people, like, this is what happens. We get it. We understand this is what happens, and here's a set of guidelines for how to handle it. So you used the word earlier in the show, curious, that the people who are curious are the ones who thrive. And if you think about kids, kids know they don't know anything, but they engage in play. They're kind of fearless. They're like, hey, let's try this. And they play with it. And if, it, if they like it, they keep playing. And if they don't, they stop. But this notion of play and curiosity is absolutely essential for kids to learn. And those same characteristics of play and curiosity are what we need as adults in our business. So we need to play with ChatGPT to figure out how it's going to help us be more productive. And I've talked to, I've been talking to executives for the last two months about ChatGPT and how it's going to change business. And we have been having a super fun time, but I know an exec who two to three hours a day of work has been eliminated by using ChatGPT. In fact, you can even say, okay, here's, um, here's all the information about my prospect company that I want to pitch for my podcast and go and look at what are all the pain points of uh, companies in this industry, create a hierarchy of the top seven pain points for companies in this industry, and then create some marketing material. I want 300 words about how we could address those on our podcast. In other words, write me the pitch document to reach out to this customer and pitch them on sponsoring a podcast series. And it will do it. Now, maybe the first cut isn't that great. And so you force ChatGPT to go back three, four, five times and refine things, elaborate on this, eliminate point two. But you use it in an iterative process to create this amazing pitch document. And people who use that, will they be more successful at winning sponsored podcasts than those who don't? And the answer is yes. So we have to have this curiosity and play continuously. But the great news is if you're playing, you're having fun all the time. Like doing this stuff is actually fun. It's fun. So when we have a, a new disease, a bacteria or virus or whatever, the pharma companies will develop um, 
a vaccine. And what often they are, in the case of bacteria, it's a very mild or muted or dormant strain of the disease. And they inject us with a needle so that our body comes to learn or identify what that disease, that pathogen is, and develop an immune system response to it, okay? So it's the same thing with learning. When I take a little baby step and learn something and go, hey, wow, I was able to get through that, I learned, hey, that's kind of cool. I build up my immunity to the discomfort of learning, changing, and uncertainty, the learning paradox. So the more I engage in innovation and learning and change, the more I can engage in it. So we need to help our people develop immunity to learning, changing, and uncertainty. And the, the union in the port, they just feel, if I can't do this job, I can't do anything else. They don't have an immune system response to say, Ooh, hey, I am a capable individual. You know, outside work, I negotiate, you know, $400,000 mortgages for my home. You know, I'm able to do incredible things. I built my own boat on weekends, you know. (laughs) Like, as humans, we're capable of incredible things. So how do we get to that mindset and build that immunity to the discomfort of change so that not just people, but entire, you know, entities like a union or organizations or an industry as a whole is able to evolve or a country in the case like of the UK wanting to ban generative AI. How do we develop this capability, this competence, this comfort with change? Dude, you nailed it. I'm like, preach. (laughs) It's awesome. I love that. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to spread that around like a virus. (laughs) That's a great analogy. Super relevant. Man, we made a podcast. How do you feel? Oh, man, I've, this is the fastest hour I've ever spent. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.